You read it. Yeah, I read it. You're not operating on all cylinders today, eh? I'm really not. I think we should point out at this point that Michael is really, really not well. No. He looks terrible. <laughs> he aches even worse. Yep. You look almost as bad as you feel. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I love you too, Dad. I love you too, baby. So, we are... Um, we're going to see how this goes tonight, because you're really not up to it, are you? No. But we didn't want to miss a recording session. We didn't. Because that would... That would mean the end of the world as we know it. Or it would be back a week. Yeah, we'd only be a week behind then. Which may be better for responding to emails, I don't know. Yeah. Alright. Perk up! Oh. <laughs> Very perky. I know. File A56-7W, classified top secret subject is... Hey kids, comics! Comic books. An art form early alive. We can rebuild them. We have the technology. With digital downloads and bookstore penetration, which sounds a bit rude, we can make them better than they were before. Better. Stronger. Introducing us this week. I'll introduce us this week. Before we, we go into email. Mm-hmm. Are you doing Hello Lovelies then? I will do, I will do Hello Lovelies. Alright, okay. Hello Lovelies. Do <laughs> <laughs> you believe it or not, lovely listener? He is as enthusiastic as he normally is, but he really is. You're really doing very well um, to even have shown up tonight, haven't you? <laughs> all that effort getting out of bed. Yeah, at least you're not back at school yet. It could be worse. I have to point out as well, I've got a sore throat. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, I've got to jump on this bandwagon. Yeah. So, okay. Go on then, begin the episode. Hello, and welcome to Hey Kids Comics, a comic book podcast that covers, well, comics. All the way from north of England. Do we only cover comics from the north of England? No, we're all the way from Uh, We're all the way from the north of England. Yes. Okay. (laughs) Your host on this show, myself, Michael Leyland, and my co-pilot... Andrew Leyland. Hello! First of all, though, emails. Yeah, do we not have any bits of business this week? I don't know. Do we I, don't, I don't think we do. Are we, we going to remind everyone we're on Two True Freaks again? We may as well. Old episodes, Two True Freaks, go and download them. We're also Parallax. <laughs> I don't think we've ever mentioned that before, oh. that we were Parallax. Paralytic, yeah. on more than one occasion, but not Parallax. I'm sure if we were Parallax, we'd uh, remind everyone every single episode. Every single episode. So, this week, emails. We're going to try something new with emails this week, aren't we? Yes. We're going to try to go to the 30-minute mark with emails and then stop. Not in the middle of an email. Well. That that would be... Uh, I reckon that. we should. Yeah, we would stop at 30 minutes, whatever we're we doing. a giant belt, uh, like, tone, and then... Yeah. Because the email section has... has has turned out to be inexplicably popular. Yeah. But at the same time, we have received feedback from people who feel that it is starting to swamp the show. Mm-hmm. Which I think is fair comment, yeah. to be honest with you. So we're going to try a new thing. We don't want to not do the emails, because as I've said before, we have received far more emails since we started doing this than we did when we did the sporadic email episode. And I like to encourage feedback from your listener. 
Yeah. Because I like to know that somebody is listening to this drivel. Oh, yeah. First of all, it's always nice to know that somebody's listening to you run off at the mouth of our funny books, isn't it? Mm-hmm. So we've decided that we're going to cap how long we talk about emails and see how it goes. Michael's idea, which we may try at a future date if this doesn't work out, because the show is ever-evolving, oh, yeah. isn't it? It is not the show that we started doing nearly two years ago. Do you know we're coming up nearly on our 100th episode? Really? Yeah. So you're doing extra double-sized episodes. I will have to work out when that's going to be, if we haven't already passed it. Yeah. <laughs> Which would be typical of me, wouldn't it? We can't have passed it, because we, we launched our... We recorded our first episode over Christmas. Yeah. Two years ago, or a year and a half ago. And then we launched it in January. So by that reckoning, the beginning of December will be our 100th episode, won't it? Okay. Theoretically. If yeah. you consider we've not missed a week... But there was a point where we did two episodes for one week, wasn't there? Mm-hmm. And we've only ever done that. Oh, no, we did that twice. Yeah. So by the end of two years, we'll have done 106 episodes, not 104 episodes. So the 100th episode should be coming up around the middle of November, beginning of December. So we'll have to work out where that is. And if the audience has any idea what they want us to do, because I, I haven't got a clue. Do you, okay. do you have a clue what you want to do for the 100th show? Spider-Man 100. We've already done that. Oh, okay. We already covered Spider-Man 100. You did. I did, yes. Because yeah. I was just so excited to get it. Yeah. I opened it and recorded a show. <laughs> Spontaneity is good. Anyway, what are we talking about? Emails. emails. Yeah, so we're going to cap the emails at 30 minutes, five minutes of which we've just wasted. Yeah. I do apologise that if you're the email that we just suddenly stop in. Our first email is a long overdue email. Oh, yes. According to the subject heading. It is from the mighty Michael Bailey. Mikey Mike B. Mikey Mike B, as Michael likes to call him. Uh, is he of some... Are they together with Crazy Chris H and the Scott Dog? Oh, yeah. Are they like the beastie boys of the <laughs> podcasting community? Probably not. <laughs> Oli, oh, it's a party cast. That doesn't really work, does that? Not really. No, not, not at all. you got to fight. But you're right. To podcast. To podcast. Does that work? I suppose. That works a little bit better than... You don't have to fight for your rights. No, sit you in your just have to show up in your pants. Pajamas. And yeah, do what you want. Scratch your, scratch your nads a bit. No one will know. No one will know because it's audio. Yeah. Which is the fascinating thing about audio. Could you imagine doing this on a webcam? We'd have to... We, I like the idea of wearing bags over our oh, heads. Yeah. I'll be like Kenny... And just having a big hood. <laughs> and so everything sounds like... Oh, no, 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 no. So it sounds like that yeah. all the time. Yeah. Anyway, the email... Anyway, the email... <laughs> <laughs> do you know, I did do that deliberately. That, oh, oh, did that, you? For the first time ever, I did start an email and then interrupt it deliberately. Right. Okay. I've never done that before. It's always been a spontaneous interruption. But this time I interrupted deliberately. Okay. Um, hello to the hosts of my favourite podcast... That's really sweet. Yeah. I'm quite touched by that. All those other people listening in who have other podcasts. You always look <laughs> on the negative side, don't you? You always look at that statement, that really sweet, quite nice statement that a man has just made towards us and our podcasting endeavour that takes an awful lot of our time and effort. And he said that we are his favourite of all the multitudes that are out there, and we appreciate that. No, I'm, I'm, we are humbled. I'm just bragging about that. the favouritism. But you, you go, but what about all those people now that, that do a show? And, and he's like, oh man, I feel so sorry for them. I'm, I'm bragging. Favoritism, yeah. 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 Favoritism. Yeah. We are humbled by that, Michael. But that we are your favourite. And you see, you can't argue with that. 
you can argue if someone says best because yeah. you can say no 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 this is better than us and this is better than us and I think there are a lot of shows better than us yeah, okay. but you can't argue with favourite because people's favourites are especially people's especially not fans. your Spider-Man list that's true mm-hmm. yes my favourite Spider-Man list was mine because nobody else would want that list oh, no. <laughs> hey wait till we do me Batman one Oh, that's just going to be 20 issues of the Batman Adventures <laughs> this was great because of this this was great because of this but what about real issues of Batman ah, there were real issues of Batman anyway I, I installed the email section may, may not run only 30 minutes it has been quite some time since I have written in continues Michael's email and for that I apologise I was trying to stay weekly though for a while and because of how the month of August usually goes for me I wasn't able for the past four years August as a month has sucked so hard for me that it's had its own event horizon and this year was no exception anyway I seem to be past that now despite tripping in the parking lot last night damn near breaking my ribs on the curb I hope you got those bandaged up and went the doctors got that sorted out bruised ribs are quite painful and hopefully you've not cracked one yeah that would be even worse speaking of even worse it's just started raining was it yeah I don't know why I feel the need to point out that it's just started raining in the north of England which which seems to be situation normal here has it yeah I can hear something anyway Mike's email continues in the rain anyway maybe it's not raining okay go and have a look Anyway, this is going to be something of a catch-all email covering the last four or so weeks of the show. As usual, I've been enjoying what you cats have been laying down for us, and now I get to double my pleasure, double my fun, double mint, with a new episode. No, I threw in the double mint, I think. You know, I was watching that commercial, I wasn't thinking about gum. Uh, anyway, double my fun with a new episode, and a classic episode, thanks to the fine gentleman over at Two Tree Freaks giving you a podcasting home. Such a professional. Slides in the reference to the other show that we upload weekly. The old shows as well as the new ones. That's podcasting genius. I would never be that good. Or I'd edit it later on and go, hey, I should have remembered that. Mm. Oh, man. The email segments continue to be very entertaining. And I like that we get some off-the-cuff material before you all dig into the meat and potatoes of the episode. Meat and potatoes pie. Okay. Pie reference. Okay. Must be northerners. Right. Who ate all the pies? Who ate all the? Who ate all the? Who ate all the pies? That's the stuff. That. Yeah, yeah, that, uh, yeah. That's where I was going, but uh, I cut the beginning off. Right. Okay. okay. While I'm sure there are many comments I could make about the various email segments, I neglected to write them down, especially while driving. So a lot of those thoughts are lost forever, like tears in rain. Sorry, I turned into Rutger Hauer, though. In the latest episode, you read an email from Aiden, who went on a rant about the new 52. While I will agree with the overall argument that DC has made a good number of mistakes over the past seven or so years, I will disagree with his cherry-picking comments in regards to the original Crisis on Infinite Earths. Whilst the Crisis was a sweeping, continuity-changing event, almost immediately there were cracks in the foundation of this bright and shiny new universe. Uh, Yeah, the Legion being one, wasn't it? Mm. Do you remember that story? John Byrne took over Superman. Okay. John Byrne laid out in his pitch that Superboy was no longer a part of continuity. Right. To which he's, he continued, by all accounts, to say, this messes up the Legion. You do know that. Okay. And he was told by editorial, yeah, 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 we've got it all in hand, we know what we're doing. Right. When the story was changed slightly, when Man of Steel was altered, mm-hmm. because he originally wanted Superman issue one to start with Superman a lot younger and inexperienced. Right. And when they said, no, 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 you can't do that, he made Man of Steel take place over a longer period of time. He once again said, but Superboy still doesn't exist. This messes up the Legion. You guys do know that, don't you? And they said, yeah, 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 it's all in hand, don't worry about it. 
they got to reboot the Legion as right. part of the crisis. And they went to John Byrne and said, you know, there no being, there'd be no Superboy. This messes up the Legion. At which point Byrne went and found a heavy brick wall and banged his head into it. Okay. So that was merely one of the cracks right. in the shiny crisis on Infinite Earths. Sure, it was a fun time to be reading DC's books, continues Michael's email, but at the same time, there was a fair bit of cherry-picking. The biggest example of this is not Man of Steel, but Wonder Woman, who made her post-crisis debut during the Legends event, which was very good, though. I like Legends. Right away, DC was telling us that while most of the stories they had published over the years did indeed happen, they now happened in a slightly different way because of that it was very easy of them to disregard certain events and adventures if the creative team saw fit to do so. So Wonder Woman was no longer a founding member of the JLA. She was replaced by Black Canary. So all of the JLA adventures with Wonder Woman were now with Black Canary. But because Black Canary and Wonder Woman had very different abilities, those stories had to go down differently than originally told. Same with Superman, who had a different Krypton, a set of very much alive foster parents, and like Wonder Woman, wasn't a founding member of the JLA, but still had many of the same adventures as he had before. I could go on with different examples, but my point is this. Whilst Crisis is an amazing story, a fantastic event, and the catalyst for a new and exciting era at DC Comics, it did not reboot the universe from the ground up. The editors and creators decided right from the beginning that we're going to keep what they were going to throw away, and this was the very definition of cherry-picking. DC has been doing this off and on since the Crisis, so to me there is little difference in that regard, and that regard alone between Crisis on Infinite Earths, Zero Hour, Infinite Crisis, and The New 52. We've, we've, we agree wholeheartedly with that because haven't we said that certainly with Batman yeah. that at post-crisis you were kind of left with this feeling that well the Englehart Rogers stuff still happened and the Denny O'Neill Neil Adams stuff still happened but maybe some of that some of that um, David V. Reed stuff maybe that didn't happen and so you were left with this idea that if it had gone down in history as a classic Bat tale then it happened Yeah. but none of the 50s and 60s stuff ever happened no so you were kind of a bit confused over what had actually happened in terms of Batman. Yeah. Especially when they did Batman Year One, Year Two and Year Three, which kind of contradicted what had happened before, but then other stuff did happen and it just it, it was it made my brain hurt. Okay. Batman continuity post crisis. To be honest with you. Oh, and Zero Hour didn't fail by any stretch of the imagination. It, like Crisis, was the start of a very exciting era in DC's history. Sure, it had its problems, but it's unfair to call it a failure, especially since a lot of the changes made during it stuck until Infinite Crisis. I don't think we said Zero Hour failed, did we? Or was that still directed at the email? I'm not sure. Because we quite like Zero Hour, don't we? Well. We think... I don't wish to speak for you. Feel free to disagree. Okay. But we think the actual Zero Hour mini-series is a tad convoluted and confusing. Yeah. And may not necessarily need to exist because it's addressing problems that only hardened comics readers cared about. And Crisis well, should really it, have got rid of all of that. Wasn't it only written just to retcons, fix certain retcons and things to do with Crisis and Infinite I think so, yes. Yeah. D- Mike knows DC better than us, so he may know better than us. Yeah. But certainly the Zero Hour issues of the books were a lot of fun as yeah. I recall and we will we are covering them when we do Prodigal aren't we yeah. we are going to do a zero month where we look at the bat books in zero month and then we'll go into Prodigal we've not decided when we're going to do Prodigal yet mm-hmm. because we've got the, the rest of this season mapped out haven't we yeah. but it is coming we will do it because we're looking forward to it Getting to the comics covered in the past month or so worth of episodes, the Flashpoint episode was a real treat, and I was real surprised by how engaged I was with the story. I, at the time, had not yet read it. 
Usually I enjoy these sorts of episodes, but still feel a certain lack of connection because I haven't experienced the book firsthand. Most of the time the book ends up being better in the telling than in the reading, but in this case it was fantastic in both cases. Michael did a tremendous job with the recaps and I loved his frenetic energy. There you go. Yeah. I'm very happy. That's made him smile a bit in his illness. Oh yeah. In his cloud of illness that hang over him. Yep. There you go, a little cheesy grin. Thanks to the episode I dug out Flash Rebirth, which I had collected all of but had only read the first few issues, and the entire 12-issue Flash series that followed, and loved the series quite a bit. The first storyline was everything I want out of a Jeff Johns story, and the rest of the series was pretty solid as well, with my favourite issue being the profile on Professor Zoom. I'm about halfway through the Flashpoint books I have, and I'm enjoying them quite a bit, with the only disappointment being the reverse Flash special, which felt like a retread of the Flash issue focusing on the character. Justice League has been a big old disappointment from issue 1. The first six issues felt like a pitch to a 90s era Justice League movie and then the current story arc has failed to grab me as well. I like Jim Lee but I always felt that people made more about his art than it deserved. This has been some of the worst writing in John's career and it has none of the characterization and life that his past series have had. I won't go into the Shazam backups because I don't want to start swearing. <laughs> My favourite bits is the Shazam backups. I do apologise to yeah. everyone who loved Captain Marvel. And I, I, I don't dislike Captain Marvel. I've got to put it out there. I always liked it when he fought Superman. And I have on my bookshelf the Power of Shazam hardcover graphic novel by Jerry Arbor, mm-hmm. which I picked up at a comic Ferdinand for a fiver. Was it a fiver? It wasn't awesome. expensive, mm-hmm. anyway. And I really enjoyed it. But I'm not a huge fan of him. I like him, I know who he is, but I've not read a great deal of Captain Marvel comics other than his battles with Superman and that Power of Shazam novel. Mm -hmm. So I have to confess I'm I'm not not enjoying the Shazam backups. I don't know why they've changed his name. That seems a bit silly to me, other than to avoid the fact that Marvel has a Captain Marvel as well. But the Captain Marvel was the first... Mm-hmm. So changing your name seems a bit silly to me, but but yeah, sorry, I'm I'm quite enjoying that more than I'm enjoying the Justice League. I can see how if you are a big fan of Billy Bats and Captain Marvel, yeah. that stuff would be painful for you. Well, and um, the Justice League's grown on me since issue seven. Is it? Yeah, I really like them onwards. If not for Steve Trevor. Yeah, Steve Trevor's pretty cool. Yeah, yeah you're still liking Justice League. I'm still liking Justice League. Yeah. Your coverage of Swamp Thing and Animal Man was spot on. I'm not buying these books, but you sure made me want to pick them up if I can find the extra cash. These sounds like really good Vertigo titles, and I appreciated the passion Michael felt for them. Good job, sirs. Thank you. You're happy with that, aren't you? I'm very happy. That was all him. I, I would never have read Swamp Thing and Animal Man without you. Mm-hmm. And I actually quite enjoyed them. Yeah. They are Vertigo books. Oh, yeah. In all but name. The Flash was an odd title for me. I haven't picked up anything past issue 6 due to lack of funds, and I have to admit that I wasn't especially thrilled with the series when I first read it. But after reading through what Johns had done and listening to the latest episode, I think I may have been too hard on the book. This warrants a second look. Uh, I'm quite surprised Michael doesn't like The Flash. I mean, he's not saying he doesn't like it, but you know what I mean. To me, it is pure, frenetic, superhero fun of a kind that you don't get a lot of anymore. Barry smiles and... <laughs> it's and all bright. It's all bright and cheerful. And yeah, there's dark bits in yeah. the story, but it's still a fun read. It's like Daredevil. Especially recently. Yeah, over at Marvel, it's a fun book. Give it another go and see what you think about it. But Mike dropped the Batman books as well. Okay. And we're of the opinion that certainly the Scott Snyder one is the best Batman's been for a long time. It, I think, still has its fault. Yeah, I, I like the Scott Snyder one. Not so happy with Detective Comics, which I think's adequate. And Batman and Robin in the Dark Knight, I can take or leave, because mm. I don't know how much that is my disliking of Damian Wayne. <laughs> I'm not a big fan of Damian Wayne, am I? No. Um, and 
Dark Knight, I like David Finch's artwork. I really don't. But see, so that may be hindering. Mm. But yeah. Batman's good. I'm enjoying Batman. All in all, both of you did a phenomenal job with your look at the new 52. I've had some seriously mixed feelings on what DC has done. On the one hand, I want to support them because I'm a DC guy. While I love the Marvel U, the DCU is my home. It has the characters I've responded to the most, and I own more DC books than comics from any other company. I mentioned earlier in the email that DC cherry-picked both After the Crisis and this new 52 continuity. That's pretty much where the similarities end, though. Outside of Batman and Green Lantern, though there are exceptions even though, the rest of the universe seems to have rebuilt from the ground up. I don't have an emotional connection to any of these characters. To be fair, I wasn't around for the first crisis, but I have read enough of DC before and after the 1985 crisis to know that while they changed a lot, they kept just as much. There was an all-star squadron in which both the pre- and post-crisis worlds... The JSA was the first superhero team. There was a feeling that DC had a rich history that the creators could take from. In this braver new world, that doesn't exist, at least for me. Some are liking it, as it is the first time they've tried to follow DC, and I don't want to take away from their enjoyment, because I've always hated it when people try and do that with me in the comics I liked. For me personally, DC isn't the company I met and fell in love with, which makes me kind of sad. See, I, I understand that, and I kind of, I get it. Yeah. But to me, this is no no different, really, from Crisis. They've rebooted everything ostensibly with an idea to bring in the new readers that we were in the late 80s, early 90s. Yeah, Whether they've the, got them... The post-Crisis was your DC and yeah. 52 is my DC. Yeah, and see, it's very interesting that there seem to be stages of being a comic fan. And I'm now at the stage where announcements just don't bug me. There's people going ape about um, Superman and Wonder Woman, aren't they? Oh, yeah. And I'm like, actually, that could be interesting. Yeah, I read that in, in uh, Kingdom Come. 600 and 600, yeah, yeah. and Kingdom Come. And there's the new, what's the new, the Marvel one called? Marvel Now. Oh, yeah. And a lot of that looks like it could be quite interesting. Ostensibly, Mark Wade on the Hulk yeah. is certainly an interesting thing. Who's doing Fantastic Four? Steve Lacey was telling me. Oh, Mike Aldred's doing a Fantastic Four book. Is and it? Mark Bagley's drawing another Fantastic Four book, and it's Mark Bagley's Mark drawing. Bagley's drawing FF, yeah. So, so that sounds like it could be interesting stuff. And I've gotten past the point now where I wail and gnash my teeth. Yeah. I just kind of go, oh, "All right, is that what you're doing now?" Oh, okay. <laughs> okay. I'll be over here reading the Shadow. And not A or R. Yes, I don't get upset anymore because there's no point, is there? On the flip side, because I don't have that connection, it is easy to add and drop titles at will. With the exception of the Superman titles, none of what I have tried has stuck, and to be fair, the Superman books have been hit and miss at best. Part of me feels like I bailed on the Batman titles before I should have, but that's beside the point. Because this isn't the DC I grew up with, and I can be more pragmatic with what I read. If I like a book, I can stick with it. If I don't like a book, it's easier to drop. I don't feel the pathological need to follow the book so I know what's going on. It's kind of liberating, actually. A little scary, but freeing in a weird way. Maybe it's because I'm getting older, maybe it's because I'm typing this at four in the morning, maybe it's because I have thousands of unread books in my collection, I'm not sure. I do know it's kind of weird for me not to feel the overwhelming need to go to the shop on a weekly basis. Oh well, that's it for now. Look forward to the Judas Contract episodes, and I'm so glad your classic episodes are on the TTF feed so I can listen to them again. Take care. Cheers, mates. Mike. Thank you, Michael, for another thought-provoking email. That means that we're not going to get this done in half an hour. (laughs) Our next email is from Luke Giaconetta. The Crisis vs. Flashpoint. Round one. Fight! is the subject head. Boyos, I'm about 25 minutes into the new 52 Flash episode, which I remain, as of this writing, very eager to hear your thoughts on, but I had to comment on some of the emails I heard on my commute into work this morning. First off, Scott H. Dog Gardner, writing into Hey Kids Comics with a different salutation to start every email. Who's stealing someone's shtick now? I kid, I kid. Mostly. There are smiley faces there as well. Oh, yeah. 
Secondly, and this is more the point of my email, one writer, Mr. Aiden, whose last name I did not catch, sorry, Aiden Mohin, Aiden's email provoked a fair bit of response, didn't it? Hmm. Sorry that the new 52 reboots did a pick and choose on what was rebooted while Crisis on Infinite Earths did not. Leaving that for a moment, the next email was from Mr. Chris Keith, who made the point that the post-Crisis books feeling seat of the pants. In your response, Andy, you made mention of the fact that certain books, the Batman books, New Teen Titans, did not reboot after Crisis on Infinite Earths. How, pray tell, is this different from the new 52 reboot? It isn't, Luke, which is the point we've been trying to make. The books that were selling well before the crisis, Batman, Titans, were left alone and had to sort of contort themselves to fit into the new status quo. The books that were selling well before Flashpoint, Batman again, Green Lantern, were left alone and had to sort of contort themselves to fit into the new status quo. Books that were considered passé before the crisis, Superman, Wonder Woman, were overhauled. Books that were considered passé before Flashpoint, Superman, Wonder Woman, were overhauled. Wow, what a difference. The facts are thus. I was six when Crisis came out. off. <laughs> he knows I'm kidding, though. And I did not read it until last year. I have no emotional attachment to either the post-Crisis reboot nor the post-Flashpoint reboot. I enjoy boots from both eras and from the pre-Crisis DCU as well. It seems to me that the complaining about the cherry-picking misses the point that every DC reboot has been exactly like that. And here's the real kick. I thought Crisis and Infinite was an absolutely amazing story. Well, that's because it is. I enjoyed it a lot more than Watchmen, which I also liked quite a bit, and thought it was one of the best pure superhero stories ever told. I even did a 13-part blog post series on it on my now eternally on hiatus blog, El Giacone's Comic Book Bunker. Link, elgiaconesbunker.blogspot.com. I've read all of them, Luke. I don't need the link. I read them all when you posted them. But despite my boundless affection for the story, I will still never have read it as a young man and witnessed the changes it wrought firsthand. I will never be emotionally invested in the crisis the way that others are. By the way, thanks again to Andy for sending me his old Traper paper back for Crisis on Infinite Earth. I have debt I have yet to repay. Oh, that's bo- bogus, man. You sent me a Han Solo action figure. And I don't send things to people in expecting something in return. So it was a gift. You do secretly. Yeah, okay, I secretly do. Send me everything you own! No, it was a present. That's what it was. In any event, the great thing about comics is there are always a multitude of books out there to enjoy. What you enjoy may not be what I enjoy, and may not be what the next guy enjoys, and so forth. We can all come to some common ground because we all love comics, and that's more than enough. Read what you like, don't read what you don't like, and we can all come together on a podcast or a board or at a con and talk comics. Anyway, just wanted to share those thoughts. I have a few addendums to the previous email, specifically for Michael. Oh, all right. I also liked Crisis on Infinite Earths. I just reread it two years ago and still enjoyed it. I also liked Infinite Crisis. I've just reread it two years ago and still enjoyed it. Widescreen and epic stuff. I think I actually like it more now that I've read Crisis on Infinite Earths. Scott Lang was killed by an exploding jack of hearts in Avengers Disassembled, but he was brought back to life by some temporal trickery in Avengers Children's Crusade as Lang's daughter, Stature, ends up saving her father from the blast and bringing him into the present. Lang is set to star in the new FF, that is Future Foundation, not Fantastic Four, but written by Matt Fraction. That was who's writing the FF that Stephen told me about. Okay. Thank you, Luke. 
The other parts of Avengers Disassemble which I like were the pretty cool Iron Man tying story, the singularity over in his title, and then the Kelsey Lee Captain Britain putting herself between the downed Captain America and the rampaging She-Hulk, only to be severely injured for her effort. There was a reference to how Kelsey became a Captain Britain in the first place, picking up Captain America's shield to defend a prone cap and wasp from Thunderball of the Wrecking Crew. Her courage in the face of certain death led to Brian Braddock and Megan, rulers of Overworld at this point, choosing her for the core. When given the choice of the Amulet of Right or the Sword of Might, however, Kelsey chose the sword, marking her as a different kind of Captain Britain than those we had seen before. The story would eventually come to a really excellent conclusion years later in the new Excalibur, where Chris Claremont revealed an entire second core of captains who had chosen the sword over the amulet and the path of violence rather than the path of vigilance. But I won't get on that tangent just now. Maybe if you guys cover some Excalibur at some point we can discuss further. Thanks, Luke. Thank you, Luke. Much appreciated as always. And finally, it's the man who instigated those two emails. Mr. Aidan Mohin is back. Hello to the two comic book voyagers chronicling their adventures on a weekly podcast. How's that for both accurate and entertaining? Hello. It'll do, won't it? We'll have that. Eight out of ten. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I was only busting your chops with the Northern Ireland thing. It was an easy jab, considering I'm an Irishman and you two are British. And growing up in my house, well, stories of the Troubles fry frequently. So, Hey Kids Comics has been fantastic recently. Absolutely fantastic. All of the talk of Vertigo and Vertigo-esque books on the recent show has collided with my own foray into the more, well, pretentious side of comic book media. And I say pretentious in the best possible way. I recently began reading Paul Chadwick's excellent Concrete series, which you guys should take a look at if you haven't become, because it's a great read if a tad depressing. I mention Concrete because it's a very Vertigo-esque book. See, I've had a long, vague interest in Vertigo, but never read all that much of it. But because you guys mentioned Hellblazer and Transmetropolitan, my Amazon cart is now filled with Vertigo books. Our Transmetropolitan episode, the very first one produced by Michael, was re-uploaded today. So go and download it. You'll enjoy it. Oh, you won't. Oh, you won't? Yeah. (laughs) Seems to be the way of things. I also have copies of Animal Man and Swamp Thing in my car. You guys seem to have a real appreciation for these books and they intrigue me. I'll get back to you when I finally sit down to read to them. I was glad to hear that you, Andy, enjoy the Flashbook. I loved the first issue, but I had to drop it when I gave up on the New 52 as a whole. I'm going to grab a trade soon. I love Maniple's art. What do you think of John's solo book with Maniple, The Dastardly Death of the Rogues? I enjoyed that one. I've not read it. Have you read it? Uh, no. Just... Oh, we've not got Dastardly Death of the Rogues? No. I thought I saw it on hardcover for you for six quid and I bought it. Um, no. Oh, maybe I imagined that. I want to give the new 52 well, another look. present you just for me. No, I've not bought you anything for your birthday. Oh, okay. Thanks. <laughs> I want to give a new 52 another look. Thanks to you guys. Working in a comic book store, all I hear is negativity directed towards the current regime of both companies. I can't really complain myself because I'm not reading anything from either Marvel or DC at the time. Well, besides before Watchmen, but does that really count? No, I don't think that does now. As I am boycotting Marvel until one more day, brand new day is undone, and slot is off the book, and DC has lost my interest. See, I don't, I don't get that. I understand not liking something and voting with your money. Mm -hmm. I'm all for that. But boycotting something until something happens, I don't understand. Because A, you've no guarantee they're going to undo one more day. Or brand new day. They're certainly not like Wizarders in charge. It's not going to happen. Secondly, some of what followed was actually quite good. Not all of it. And I'm actually finding it really difficult to be a Spider-Man fan at the minute because his books just aren't that good at the minute. And I don't know what's gone wrong, because Dan Slott's a very good and capable writer. Yeah. But the current story arcs on Spider-Man Ends of the Earth and then the lizard stuff are just dull. Have you enjoyed them? Um, no. 
Oh, okay. I'm, I was expecting a big long reply, though. I wanted to enjoy Ends of the Earth more than I actually did. Mm. That's pretty much, yeah, perfect. Yeah. I wanted to enjoy it more than I did. That's exactly right. But the recent Spider-Man book since um, One More Day have been my Spider-Man. I've been reading see, them. See, I think, despite the controversy of One More Day, yeah. what followed was almost worth it. One More Day was utter crap. I liked it. You disagree. But that's because it's my Spider-Man. Yeah, but how they got rid of his marriage was was awful. Yeah. Beyond the telly. But what followed it? Some of that wasn't bad. But I don't understand why they just... I don't understand why they've rebooted, essentially, Spider-Man and got rid of the marriage, but changed nothing else. Harry Osborn's back for what reason? They've done nothing with him. They've introduced a whole new bunch of supporting characters that once again have fallen by the wayside well, when a new writer's come I on board. them bringing back Harry was pretty important to the stories they did with Dark Reign. Dark Reign and Father's Son and Norman yeah. Osborn. But now he's gone from the books again. Yes. And you're like, well, what? I much preferred, in, in retrospect, I actually prefer Straczynski's original idea. He wakes up and it's Amazing Spider-Man 103. And the first 103 issues happened, and you go from there. And Harry's back, and Gwen's back, and he's back in college, and they were never married. And, and more and more, I'm thinking that was the way to go. Okay. Because Brand New Day was the very definition of hit and miss. Seeing as they had so many different writers and so many different artists. It was a different creative team. Yeah, so it was a different creative team every month. Yeah. And for every Mark Wade and Dan Slott, who did good stuff in that thing, and Roger Stern and Guggenheim. Yeah. I'd include Guggenheim in that. There was a team of writers who weren't quite as good. Zeb Wells, and there's a couple of others that I wasn't greatly impressed whose name escaped me at the minute. And then they moved on to big time, and you're thinking, right, a steady creative team. But it's not been. Dan Slott's had a few fillings in, or co-written a few issues. Yeah. And there's not been a regular artist. There's like three different artists. Yeah. And it's and it's just been very disappointing after big big time started off very well. Yeah. And just isn't now. And I, and part of it is I don't think they understand who Peter Parker is. He's written as this slightly nebbish, snarky, loser type guy instead of being a very intelligent person whose conflux of events in his life conspired against him. It's... I don't like the new Peter Parker very much. Uh-huh. He's a bit of a spanner, whereas Peter was never a spanner. He was occasionally a bit of a tool to his friends at school, but they deserved it, let's be honest. And being Spider-Man gave him a bit more confidence to stand up to them. Yeah. And so he did, but he stood up to him by being a snarky get. But they deserved it. And he wasn't always that way. When Liz Allen started showing him some time and actually appreciating the fact that he's actually quite smart. Mm. And he's not scared of Flash Thompson at all. He did actually start reciprocating and started being friendly to her. So he wasn't a complete and utter arse in high school, but he had a lot on his mind. His father figure's just been killed. He's got to support the family, despite only being 15 or 16. Plus he's still got to attend high school. And he never dumped that on any of his friends. He never told them that was the problem which may have been part of why everyone considered him aloof. After school, he had to take off and earn money yeah. and do his homework. And this new Peter Parker just seems like a bit of a... I don't want to say loser, because he's got a great job, but he just seems like directionless and doesn't know what he's doing. And that's not my Peter Parker. Anyway, that was a tangent, wasn't it? Uh, I think that the new 52 has more, a few more bad books than good books, but the good books sound really good. Anyway, thanks for a great show. Aiden Mohit. I apologise for the weirdly spelled last name. You see, my distant ancestors were a travelling band of thieves. 
<laughs> and they changed their names to sound like they were wealthy and classy. True story. Because my family is also stupid, we never changed our name when we reformed. <laughs> oh dear. P.S. I apologise for the laugh after the email being bold and squiggly letters. Yahoo's weird that way. P.P.S. Could you send me that Morrison reading order you mentioned? I really need that because Morrison weirdness. Uh, you did, didn't you? I did, yeah. So Michael sent you that. So I hope you appreciate it. And uh, take what he says to heart, because you know your stuff, don't oh, you? Yeah. Uh, so we went on for five more minutes than we wanted to with emails. We but we're going to we're gonna cut it off, though. We've only got one other email this week anyway. But it's a long one, and it's from somebody who's already written in this week. So we'll save that till next week. Yeah. Okay, so we're going to take a quick break, and we'll be right back with Michael's Spotlight On. week on the 20 minute long box I submit myself to the powers of randomness and review a title from my collection completely at random and all within 20 minutes it's the super compressed podcast for the decompressed written for trade age join me Steve Lacey each week at 20 minutes longbox.libsyn.com or find me on iTunes started our series of spotlights where we focus on three of our favourite writers, artists and even letterers. <laughs> I'm going to go out of the limb here. I'm going to say, don't think we're going to cover a letterer. Not Which is not to say that we don't appreciate letterers. Mm-hmm. John Workman, great letterer. Okay. Maybe we should do colourists. That Patricia Mulliver-Hill from last week. She's a good colourist. Okay. Adrienne Wright, she was good as well. Mm. Anyway, sorry I interrupted. Yeah, it is last week we had Burn. And this week, it's my choice of Frank Whitler. <sighs> wow, I can hear your size already. No, I was just for comic effect. Yeah. I was quite surprised you picked this. Was you? Yeah. Okay. Quitley isn't the best of artists, and a lot of people certainly know that. But every once in a while, something strange will happen. Something so strange that suddenly all those awards and acclaim make sense. <laughs> he draws an issue that has absolutely great artwork, and then he'll go a bit crap again. But... Me being the strange one I am, I actually like Quitler, even his naff stuff. E- even Earth 2. Even Earth 2? Even Earth 2. Yes, yes. Well, I, I didn't particularly like Earth 2. Mm. Either story or art. Oh, fair enough. But, carry on, we're not talking about Earth 2 today. Yes. So why do I like Quitler? Well, I'm not so sure myself. 
he's a very hit and miss type of artist. For every Flex Mentella, we get a new X Men. But even when his artwork is bad, the storytelling is still great. Most noticeably is We Three and Flex Mentello, and even the panel layouts in All Star Superman. He has a different approach to drawing, which sometimes is a bit naff, but when a writer pushes him, he takes on a whole new level, in my opinion. So even if I don't like his art, I think his storytelling is great, and that's why he's one of my favourite artists. Excellent. Uh, how long have you liked Mr. Quinn? Because part of the brief for this was it had to be somebody who had a decent body of work, yeah. and that we felt had brought the, the greatness to every project they do. So you even like the stuff where you acknowledge that he's not firing on all cylinders. Like, his new X-Men run, I thought, was god-ugly. No, but that one issue that I chose mm. was because of the storytelling right. and not the art. Right. Because okay. the art's a bit now. Fair enough. What was the first thing you read of Mr. Quitley? I don't know. Probably Earth two years ago. Yeah, because I've had that a while now, haven't I? Yeah. Right. Okay, fair enough. The Scottish artist is a well-known name in the comics industry, and it's probably because of Grant Morrison. What's his real name? It says in one of these books, I'm sure it does. Does it? I'm pretty sure it does. But Quitley has an array of comics with his name on them, including Batman, The Scottish Connection, Electric Soup, Judge Dredd Magazine, 2020 Visions, The Authority, New X-Men, Batman and Robin, Flex Mentala, Wii 3, and the upcoming Jupiter's Children. And has also drawn covers for several issues, even though he didn't provide interiors. First one I saw of his was 2020 Visions. Jamie Delano wrote that, didn't he? Yes. Because I will confess, I thought the artwork in that was pretty spectacular. Was it? Yeah. You only have issue one. I only have the first issue. I've never read it. Maybe you should. Now, I sat down on my bed in front of my bookshelf and laid out all the single issues in front of me. And I had to decide what to include on the show. Every comic had to meet specific criteria I'd made. One, was it not only good, but great enough to impress Dad, who wasn't one of Quitley's fans? And B, was it written by Grant Morrison? you considered me in that (laughs) alright I want to do it quickly now how can I show dad that this guy doesn't actually suck but does he do anything that isn't written by Grant Morrison because otherwise dad's just going to go I'm not having none of that which which was a struggle because I never (laughs) I never look at a book and go oh that's Frank Quitley I'll buy it it's always oh that's Grant Morrison I'm Grant Quitley yeah yeah okay fair enough see this was actually very hard they were all Morrisons. Mm, yeah. Oh, well, at least I had another month to decide. Yes. So this episode starts as a short one, but then I had more and more ideas, and then I had all my comics. Blackheart, a story collected in Dark Horse Presents. Destination, short story from the Sandman Endless Nights. Issue 1 of Flex Mentallo and Batman and Robin. Yeah, I'll let you all down the last two. Ah, but I will argue that at least one of those was well chosen. Both of them were well chosen for showcasing Mr. Quitley. Yeah. So the first story, Blackheart, which was collected in Dark Horse Presents 91-93, was written by Morrison, Robbie that is, and lettered by Clem Robbins. Ah, I see what you did though. You threw us a curveball, didn't you? We thought you were going for another Morrison one, and you did! But a different Morrison. Very well done. None of these issues had a Blackheart cover. 91 had a Hellboy, 92 had Too Much Coffee Man, and 93 had Eno and Plum. (laughs) I did like that Eno and Plum story. Did you read yeah, that? Yeah, I did. That the story starts in Mississippi in 1931, with a man with a guitar stood next to a burning cross in front of two hanging bodies. He walks to a cross where he breaks down to his knees and sheds a tear as he plays his guitar. Suddenly, the cross is struck by a horned creature that covers the man with its shadow. New York, 1932. The man stands in a room down a set of stairs, surrounded by men in business suits and a pool table. Two men have cues, another has a gun. 
They tell the man, Blackheart, to sing them a song and dance them a jig. But not being a dancing man, Blackheart attacks the men and takes them all down. He grabs the last conscious man and tells him to deliver a message to the boss. Her time ain't nothing compared to the grief he's gonna lay on them. Later in the Empire Nightclub, he speaks to Booker, a toothless horn-playing old man who tells him he's missed his set and nobody's happy, especially Martha. Martha is zipping up her dress when Blackheart meets her and she congratulates him on the show he put on. Sarcastically. Yes. He takes a drink of whiskey, grabs Martha and kisses her as three men enter the pool room with the unconscious goons. One man is wearing a trench coat and a fedora, the other two are wearing white pants and black jumpers but with shoulder pads, a sort of uniform. One of them begins to question the businessman in the coat as they start shooting the goons. The man then decides to leave, taking one of Blackheart's calling cards with him before dropping it in a puddle of blood. The following morning, Blackheart and Martha wake up as the man in the trench coat moves boxes into the Empire nightclub. Martha tells Blackheart about a dream she had, but he doesn't take any of it on and asks can he use it for a song. She asks him if she ever felt like going back to home into the south, but he says he's trying to avoid that, and asks her why does she need him with her if she has her band. Better the devil you know, she says, as her eyes glow white. Later, after Booker finishes his song, Martha and Blackheart's band begin to play the Empire nightclub, but all the crowds start being sick. The crowd of uniformed goons that killed the henchmen in the club the previous night walk through the doors and reveal that a group of the audience was infected with a variant form of mustard gas and reveal that they are the Minutemen. No, not those Minutemen. <laughs> and that have been empowered by the presidential authorities since 1776 to preserve and maintain the democracy founded in that year and they are here to eliminate the vigilante known as Blackheart, a threat to their order. The leader says that if the infected aren't treated in two hours, they'll die, and woos Martha before Blackheart, having changed out of his secret identity, cuts the rope, dropping a light on one of the guards, and fights the rest. The leader and another take Martha and flee to the Zeppelin. Blackheart tells Booker to administer the antidote to the infected, and then runs along the route in pursuit of the Zeppelin, and leaps for the ladder. He makes it on board and blows a hole in the ship, sending goons flying out. Blackheart fights the leader's servant until he throws him out of a window. He kicks the leader off a catwalk and into the fire, but he grabs onto a rope and hangs up above it. Blackheart kicks the cockpit door down as the Zeppelin crashes into buildings and goes to free Martha, but is attacked by the Minutemen leader. Blackheart says that he's made a deal at the crossroads and he ain't dying today. Martha then turns into a demon and kills the leader before turning on Blackheart. She too made a deal at the crossroads, and only she can kill Blackheart due to them both being hellbound. She says that whoever kills Blackheart can get their lives back. The Zeppelin crashes into the sea and Martha tells Blackheart to kill her. He refuses to, and walks away. Even if he could kill her, he would still refuse. Story-wise, I enjoyed this. Uh, I think you did a really good job story, but we're not talking about the story. You've picked an artist. Yeah. So. Uh, part one, page one is great. From the detailed first panel of the burning cross on the two lynch people to the last panel of the man uh, with the lynch entry in the background. One of the things I like about Quitley's art, uh, when it's at its best, that everything's loose and no one looks posed as stiff. And the hanging people are prime examples of this. Yeah. See, you've men- you mentioned in your little preamble that you gave a lot of thought to what you were picking here because essentially you're convincing me here why Quitley is on your list. Yeah. See, well, I picked three examples of what I thought was good John Byrne, mm-hmm. none of which you'd read before. No. And you ended up enjoying them all. You had a much harder battle here because you didn't have any opinions on Byrne either way. You'd read some of Superman run, and that's pretty much it, isn't it? Um, an X-Men. An X-Men. The, the Clermont X-Men. An X-Men. And John Byrne's an X-Men, yeah. Which is pretty damn good. 
Um, whereas I already have my preconceived notions about Frank Quillen. Yeah. What I have learned from this is that I think he's a much better artist when he's drawing stuff like this than when he's drawing superhero stuff. His superhero stuff is so off-model, I find it off-putting. It's Superman. It's Steve Dillon. Yeah, well, there's, you know, see, Steve Dillon's a great artist. But you still don't think she'll be anyone in a superhero. Yeah, no, that's Garth Ennis. I don't think I've seen enough of Steve Dillon drawing superheroes to be able to comment. Okay. I don't know if he ever has, has he? He's done a couple of issues of Wolverine that I know of. Yeah. And the Punisher. He's doing Spider Man. Is he? He's doing up from Spider Man, isn't he? Is he? Alright, so I didn't know about that. But John Byrne drew Superman, Kurt Swan drew Superman, Gil Gain drew Superman, Kurt Swan drew Superman. They didn't look like each other, but they all looked like Superman. When Quitley drew Superman, he looked like Desperate Dan in a Superman suit. Okay. And therefore I didn't buy it totally. But in this, yeah, that first panel, it's not actually a splash panel, because it only covers three quarters of the page. Um, but it, it is excellent. It's really good. The cross is burning. It being in black and white helps, because the shading on that panel is awesome. Yeah. Everyone looks real. Like you say, the clothes are draped properly. The people's limp bodies hanging from the nooses hang as you would expect them to. It is a really, really exceptionally good opening panel. Mm. And the three panels that follow it are really good as well. I especially like the third panel on that page of him kneeling down playing his guitar. Mm. I like the fact we can't see his face on any of it. His face is covered by his hat. It's a really exceptionally good piece of art. He puts more detail in it when it's in black and white. Do you think? Yeah. Right. Okay. Part one, page four, panel four. Um, Quitly puts so much detail into everything, which gives the impression of colour and tone in a completely black and white book. The brick wall is so much detail in every single brick, uh, brick and gives the book texture and makes the wall look like a brick wall rather than a smooth orange or grey building we see in colour comic. Yeah, see, is that him putting more effort into it because it's black and white or is this what his art looks like before it's coloured? Because certainly one of the criticisms has been that without the colour, his art isn't anything. So that was one of the criticisms of All-Star Superman, wasn't it? The yeah. cover, especially. Without the colour, that cover was naff. Oh, yeah. Whereas All-Star Superman is all colour, really. Is it? Mm. Does he colour it? Um, no. Right. It was all digital. He pencilled it, and then it was digitally inked and coloured. Right, yeah. So, yeah, the, de- yeah, the detail on his out with the pool hall. Mm. I like the pool hall, I like the clothes, I like that they're all wearing, because I like them wearing fedoras and suits, so yeah. we should all dress like that, I think that would be really cool. All men should wear fedoras and all women should be dressed to kill. Okay. It's the way of things. But yeah, I don't know, see I don't know enough about his art to be able to say if he's putting extra effort in because it's black and white, but it's really good. Part 1, page 8, panel 1 is again a fantastic panel of uh, a riverside street at night. Mm. Everything in this is massively detailed and textured, from tiny bricks to the night sky, the road, the fire hydrant, the half-unseen boats on the other side of the wall uh, at the port in the far distance. I like the shading. Mm. I like the shading on that panel is awesome. It is, it's um, it's very much perspective shot of, um, is it a train line, that, running past the buildings in what would probably be described as the seedy side of town yeah the moon hangs low in the sky other than that there's not a cloud to be seen the light from the moon is is gets brighter as it falls onto the the boats that are over the brick wall it is an exceptionally good panel you look at this and it is one of those things where i feel bad for all the crap things i've ever said about it yeah because it is exceptionally well drawn the fact that it's only eight pages does beg the question 
Do you think he'd be better not keeping to a monthly schedule? Probably. Right. Because okay. then he'd be rushing and everyone would have your Gary Frank faces and saggy bums. <laughs> Gary Frank. Yes, yeah. I'm glad you mentioned that because a lot of them do seem to have saggy underpants. Yeah. Don't they? Part two, page one, panels one to three looks great. Um, it's one big panel split into two panels and the middle panel looks as though it doesn't have a panel but is drawn on the background of the page. First panel shows the head of the bed with the head of Blackheart and Martha as well as some drawers all covered in darkness as though it's night. The middle panel shows Martha getting out of bed and Blackheart sitting up. Uh, there's no detail other than the bed and a poster next to it. And the third panel shows the end of the bed and Martha stood up in front of the window. Only the areas in darkness are detailed and everything in the sunlight has no detail to it. Yeah, it's, it's really good because it is one panel. Yeah, essentially showing the full length of the bedroom with the bed in it but it's a really excellent way of showing the passage of time it's very impressive he doesn't draw bad nudes either no. and I'm proposing that from an artistic standpoint oh, yeah. I'm not going hey you know what I mean well there's nothing to it really yeah he's, he's drawn a, a realistic nude female form but the guy, Blackheart's in bed as well, and it's a realistic male nude form. Mm. So, because the black and white, the colour's not there to hide anything. So it is a really, really effective top panel, split into three to show how time passes. It's really good. Mm. Yeah, I am quite sorry I've slagged this guy off so much. Oh, we'll have plenty more nudes in the later issue. Oh, okay, fair enough. Part 2, page 6, is um, a dialogueless fight scene. That's a good example of how Quitley's fight scenes include people standing in awkward positions as and moving as though they're dancing. Yeah, um, there's no words on the page. Yeah. Uh, and the guy's got a knuckle duster on, which always makes me go, ouch. But yeah, the, the balletic approach to the fight scene is pretty awesome. Um, you've missed the one of my favourite bits, which is the band earlier yeah. on. The band on, uh, on page three where you actually see the band that Black Hat should play with when he's not off being a vigilante. And I like that middle panel on that page. All their instruments are brilliant. They all look like real people. I like the ones playing a cello, mainly because I just like a cello. I also like the guy in the bottom panel being sick. <laughs> I don't know why I like that. I just I just like that panel. I think it's really good. Uh-huh. I like the Zeppelin yeah. as well. There's a shot from the floor of Zeppelin hovering above buildings. Again, all the bricks are really detailed. The sky has stars in it. There's no obvious lighting, but we're presuming that it's still a full moon. Mm. I love that shot of the Zeppelin, with the, the, the rope ladder hanging downwards. I think that's really good. Part, part 2, page 8, panels 1 to 3, a very good shot of the Zeppelin still, uh, but taken up all three panels, and Blackheart running and jumping across the buildings to get to it. Yeah, again, he's done the trick he did on the first page, where the top three panels essentially form one long panel, showing the buildings and the zeppelin like Michael says and the panels are split into three showing him starting to jump off a building making the leap and in the third panel landing on the opposite building it, it is really good it's a really effective storytelling technique similar to what Ditko would do with Spider-Man but Spider-Man would have multiple Ditkos in one panel yeah. to give the illusion that he was moving it really fast this is showing us him moving across one panel but the panels taken together form one long one so without the lines down the middle separating the panels, this would be an old Ditko Spider-Man, mm-hmm. wouldn't it? Yeah, it's very good. I like the last shot on that page of as well of him leaping for the rope bridge. Yeah. And the shot of the the buildings underneath him 
So if he's going to fall, though, he's falling quite a distance. Yeah. Uh, the final part of the story wraps it all up. So is this a 22-page story on its own? Yep. Alright, so essentially it's one issue. Has it ever been reprinted anywhere? Definitely. Uh, the fight scenes in this, in the Zeppelin, are very Dick Tracy. Yeah. Which I quite liked about it. You know, when I was reading this, I didn't notice that he wore a mask. Yeah. Uh, I love the fight scenes. The fight scenes are brilliant. I love the ratatatatata special effects mm. of the guns. I wasn't quite sure about the ending where his girlfriend turns into a bad guy. Oh, yeah. But I do like the Zeppelin crashing to the floor with Cafoom as the sound effect it's and you have succeeded in partially changing my mind about Mr Quitley based purely on those three issues of DC Comics Presents the artwork was exceptionally good I don't know if it's just because I'm a mark for black and white art Mm -hmm. but you can't hide anything in black and white you've not got the colours to hide for behind and you can't complain about bad processing yeah. in the printing and that was really good mm-hmm. I'd, have, I'd have original art from that if I could afford it you? that's how good it was right, so go on continue to impress me alright then next up is Flex Mentalo oh and you've just lost me part one of the four part <laughs> story that spins out of Morrison's run on Doom Patrol oh dear god can I just say story wise this was crap really it was alright to be fair okay. I'm playing to the audience though saying it was yeah, crap yeah yeah um it was alright I read all four issues now I know we're not talking about the story mm-hmm. but it felt very familiar to everything somebody. he's ever written it's, before yeah it's Morrison again analysing what it is to make a story the boundaries between reality and fiction and the guy who understands that superheroes are awesome is stoned yeah yes anyway but we're not talking about the story okay. so carry on uh, Mentalo's story is a strange one. His origin involves green pens, the Pentagon, an ant farm, and green pubic hair. What? Y- yeah. The She-Hulk's in this comic, is she? No. Huh. Do you want to give you those issues of Doom Patrol? Uh, probably not, no. <laughs> After his team up with the Doom Patrol, he moved on to his own miniseries, which gained controversy and wasn't reprinted until this year. That would be this? Yes, it would. Why but, was it not reprinted? Um, because of that Charles Atlas thing. Charles Atlas doesn't look anything like Flex Mentala. No, but it was his origin. The die you kicking sand in my eyes. Oh, I'm, I'm going to order this book and now I'm all muscly. But the Doom Patrol issues were allowed to be reprinted. Uh, yeah. But the Flex Mentala limited series wasn't. Even though that origin was only in Doom Patrol. I was about to say, the, yeah. that, that, that was the Doom Patrol stuff. That's not even mentioned in this miniseries. But that was the reason why it wouldn't couldn't be reprinted. That doesn't make any sense. Yeah. Alright, fair enough. Okay, who am I to argue with yeah. lawyers? Flex Mentello, Man of Muscle Mystery, has a cover date of June 1996 and costs a whole $2.50. After the fact, part one, Flowery Atomic Heart, head up by Quitler, lettered by Ellie DeVille, coloured by Tom J. McCraw, edited by Stuart Moore, and just so happened to be written by Grant Morrison. The cover is of Mentalo flying towards us, pitching a tent in his tiger pattern shorts and trench coat, telling us to buy this comic now or the Earth is doomed. It's also approved by the World Bodybuilding Association. <laughs> I wonder if there's such an organiser. Probably not. Probably not, no. He wouldn't let them reprint it, would they? Probably not. The cover's actually quite funny. Yeah! With all the different bits on it. Yes, I liked the cover. All new, no reprint in a reprint. Yes. <laughs> That's ironic. Mm. Um, I don't know what to make of his drawing of Flex Mentalo 
I can't decide if I like it or not. I don't, I don't like his Flex Mentello. Oh, right. Everything but his Flex Mentello I think is really good. Yeah, I've heard of A man in a hat and trench coat throws a bomb at us. The bomb explodes and forms stars and constellations. Those constellations grow smaller and smaller until they become a crease in the man's hat, and he too grows smaller and smaller until he's a small dot on an eggshell that is about to be cracked so that eggs can be cooked for Flex's sandwich as he waits in an airport. Before he digs into his sandwich, Flex hears a scream and turns around to see a bomb. He leaps into action and summons his muscle mystery powers, but the bomb simply <laughs> fizzes out. It wasn't a bomb at all, it was a key to something strange. Elsewhere, a man in a messy house looks for the buzzer, a phone in the shape of a stripy car. At the police station, the lieutenant asks Flex about Faculty X, who have been placing fake cartoon bombs in places that real bombs would damage foundations of the establishment. With no evidence that there were any people placing the bombs, the lieutenant believes that Faculty X is a hoax. The detective then hands Mentallo something that came in earlier. Flex recognises this as a fact card. The waxworker stands holding a fact card that says, The fact is, the game's up, waxworker, as his henchmen stand confused. The fact swings into action and kicks the waxworker as the panels turn into a badly drawn comic as the creator, the man from earlier, looks at them in awe as he thinks the work of the children is pure. He then looks through a few more pages and finds half-inked page of Flex, telling the lieutenant that the fact is a fictional character that was created by Flex's creator, Wally Sage, who died in Flex's arms in Doom Patrol. As Flex leaves the police department, the lieutenant's phone rings. The man from earlier lies in his kitchen floor with the buzzer ringing but with no answer on the other side. Flex sits at home and remembers his glory days before putting on the TV. But nothing's on other than a farmer who's building a rocket to send his son into space as he believes the world is ending soon. And a madman who claims that he was sent from space to show wonders to mankind but forgot all the important bits and now the world is doomed. His last sentence, who's going to save the world now, is what sets Flex off. To the guy uh, sets off in the rain and speaks to someone on the phone. He tells him his name is Wally Sage, but that's not his real name, of course. As Flex asks a police officer what's the first fact that comes into his mind, he replies by telling Flex that there's an old abandoned school around the corner, and so Flex heads there. He enters the school and stands in, in a class doorway as Wally tells us. Samaritans his phone in that he remembers a man just standing in his class doorway when he was eight. He then talks about comics and an operation he had as Flex encounters a man in the school. He asks the janitor what did the building used to be, and Flex is told that it was a school for sidekicks. Flex asks why the janitor is still here if the building's shut down. He's told that the janitor is the mightiest man in the world. One day he passed a homeless man and gave him some money, and in return the man gave him a crossword puzzle and told him to say the last word he writes out loud. The word is the word God spoke when he brought the universe into being. So he tried it and received powers. Flex asks why not save the world with all the powers he has, but the janitor says it's the people who need saving. The world's just fine as it is. He gives Flex the crossword and tells him to check out the railroad station. At the station, Flex sees a Faculty X member place a bomb and chases after him. The member enters a phone booth and disappears. Then, as Flex inspects the booth, photos of the fact come out. Hmm. I'm glad you weren't synopsing the entire story. Because uh. that would have taxed even the most uh, ardent of uh, recapper. This being a Grant Morrison story, you know. Yeah. Which can basically be summed up as... Uh, drunk adult bloke thinks that comic books are real and thinks he's the creator of a number of comic book characters. But kind of is. But kind of is. Yeah. Because in Grant Morrison's head, reality and fiction frequently marry. Oh, yeah. That being said, 
the first two pages I think are really good yeah the bomber in the universe and even the this is your brain on drugs joke yes yes which is an old uh, advert isn't it that Bill Hicks would, would scam on so we've had two Bill Hicks jokes in, in one episode now, yeah, yeah. Uh, panel page three is the one that I'm not sure about the background is awesome alright I agree with you that every single face though looks real and awesome and fantastic and then Flex Mentalo just looks kind of cack he does See, whilst I think this miniseries is some of Quitley's best artwork I still dislike his Flex everything about him is out of proportion and just looks silly which surely must be deliberate mustn't it well because he's a comic character so but when your thighs are as big as your biceps yeah and he's got really short stumpy arms as well mm. Which it could have something to do with him being a comic character in a real world. Yeah, I mean, they could be playing with the idea that everyone else is almost photorealistic. Yeah. Whereas Flex Mantello isn't. Very top-heavy. Mm. Um, page five, I like the attention to the hero halo on panels two and three. That change is depending on how it's looked at, as though it's an actual sign. Yeah, a hero of the beach appears over his head when he taps into his muscle power yeah or whatever it is flexes his muscles and he taps into changes okay fair enough I like the next page I like Wally Sage's apartment yeah I think it's fantastic I think he's he's, I've got that pocket knife yeah and his roll ups for his cigarettes and the video cases everything is brilliant on that he looks like Neil Gaiman yeah I don't know if that's deliberate it's probably not but Wally Sage looks like Neil Gaiman yeah um this story, um, this story's Wally Sage is very different from the actual Wally Sage we saw in Doom Patrol. For a start, the actual Wally Sage is dead. Right. And he was much older. Um, but this Sage is actually Grant Morrison. So Grant right. Morrison's wrote himself into the story again? Not that, but Sage's <laughs> memories are all Morrison's. If you watch them talking with God's documentary mm. and then read this and Invisibles, it's pretty much all of Morrison's childhood told in comics right so what about his superpowers book is that not is that just a book about superheroes yeah right okay um I like the normal stuff I have changed my opinion drastically on him when he draws normal stuff Mm. the panel of Neil Gaiman (laughs) maybe it's Grant Morrison with her yeah rather than Neil Gaiman in his apartment with the mess all over the floor and I like the cat Mm. which he's called Tibbet which is just hiding behind the settee. No, I just hate Grant Morrison when he writes cats. Why do you hate Grant Morrison when he writes cats? Animal Man, where they feed the tiny, adorable kittens to the dogs, and the filth, which is essentially 12 issues of a cat dying. Excellent, good. Does he not like cats? No, he does. Yeah. But his cat died at the time of writing it and wanted to share that pain with everyone else. Right, uh, okay, fair enough. Yeah. Uh, pages 9 and 11. Um, I like the transitions between the comics to Wally Sage to Flex. Yeah. I also like the crappy childlike drawing. Yeah, of of his, what he's drawing of the comic, and then the comparison between what's happening in reality. Mm. The artwork in this is really very good. Yeah. I like the colouring as well. Who coloured this? Um, I'm sure I mentioned it. Pete Doherty. But it it was changed. My hardback has um, a different colour. The originals. Right. Is it not coloured by the same guy? I don't know, but they've been recolored. The page twelve, Flex's flashbacks are pretty funny, you know, similar to Golden Age, Silver Age comics. Mm. See, I, I never get 
I never understand there is if he is he parodying them. No idea. Probably. Because see, that's my problem with a lot of this. I know, I get that he's coming from a place of love, hmm. but at the same time, he takes the piss a little bit too much. Yeah. For me to take his stories seriously, and if you're not emotionally engaged in the material and the characters, I don't like the story. Mm-hmm. But again, we're only looking at the art because you pick the artist, and uh, the hospital room is brilliant. Because there's nothing in it. No, no, he's done a good job of drawing the hospital beds and, and the old bloke sweeping up hmm. is really good. I like the cover of the next one as well, which is the astronaut yeah. floating in space reading a Flex Mentalo comic. It's all the um, pretty cool. I read the whole thing of this because I ended up with a bit longer for my dinner hour because of a cancelled appointment. And I did like the art much more than I liked the story, hmm. for which I do apologise. But you're doing a good job here of selling me on the idea that he's a much better artist than I previously gave him credit for. Yeah. So what's next up, then? Next up is a short story from The Sandman, Endless Nights, a graphic novel written by Neil Gaiman. The cover is of Morpheus, the Sandman's face behind a multicoloured mask, uh, and is by David Keane. Okay. Destiny is written by Gaiman, with Critley on art, and Laverne Kinzerski. <laughs> I always like names that end with ski. On colours. Destiny, the eldest member of the Endless, walks through his garden. That's about it, story-wise. <laughs> we are looking at this for its art and not its story. Yes, we are. Fair enough. Um, and they're all splash pages, we need yeah. to say. And in your absolute... This isn't an absolute, is it? This is an absolute. This is an absolute. Yeah. Uh, it does... The, the reproduction is gorgeous. Hmm. It has to be said. The story's original artist was uh, French artist Jean Girard, a.k.a. Mobius. But due to his deteriorating health, uh, even changing the story to complete splash pages was too much. Instead, Quitley was chosen, who does have similar art style to Girard. Uh, page one shows a small cloaked man in the middle of a small field surrounded by pillars and ruins and mountains. The ruins have hints of several architectural styles, as Roman, Greek, Chinese and Aztec styles. At the bottom of the page is Destiny, um, walking out of a tunnel holding his broom. Page 2 shows Destiny stood in front of seven giant statues of the members of the Endless. Mm. There are several hints in this page that suggest where the story is based, such as destruction based in the opposite direction of everyone else and carrying a bag, which suggests that the story is set after the brief life story. And Morpheus's posture suggests this is set either just before or during the Kindly Ones. Okay, fair enough. And there's a bit of the bottom, which is him holding his group. Yeah, the art is lovely. I just... just, just... The colours are really good. The colours are exceptionally good. I particularly like the next page, page three. Yeah. The bottom drawing, is that Destiny? That's Death. Yeah, Death, sorry, not Destiny. Looked penciled and then coloured in. Yeah. It's the best Death he's done. If you look at every other um, drawing of her, it's pretty awesome crap. Well, you kind of cut him some slack on page two because it's a statue. So statues don't always look like the person they're supposed to look like. Mm -hmm. And then the next one's a portrait. But that, that is pretty damn good. And Death looks quite cute, mm. which he normally does. Page 3 shows Destiny stood in front of the Endless Portraits, which in the series we used to summon one member to the Summoner's Realm. Destiny's portrait is a mirror, as he's already in his own realm, and Destruction's portrait is covered up by a sheet. Mm. So is that telling some part of the story it's as well? because he's buggered off and he's quit. Right, his realm. okay. Page 4 shows Destiny stood behind a round table in the middle of a hall, uh, the table has six chairs around it due to destruction departing. Uh, this table was last seen in the Season of Mists. 
which they all gathered around to have a talk. It is! I'm sat here stroking it. It's not all you that does this. But I do love these absolute volumes. Mm. I think they're really good. Page 6 shows Destiny looking down at his now open book, which is several people's done there. All of them are different in age, but all naked. The pages show illustrations of several people on them. Yeah, because again, they're talking about the nature of stories, aren't they? Which was a Sandman thing as well. Page 7 shows Destiny walking past the remains of a dead deer surrounded by flies. The tree that the lion is sleeping on is in the shape of a deer skull. The branches form eye sockets and the antlers, and there are scratches on the bark uh, that form the shape of nostrils and teeth. Mm. Yeah. Page 8 shows the book, which is collapsing in on itself, but the universe is coming out of it. Written on the pages and coming out of them are several particles and elements. Page 9 shows Destiny walking down steps under an archway with several buildings in different styles behind him. Yeah, it was gorgeous, this. Again, I only read this chapter because I've not read the, the, this last volume of The Sandman. Hmm. But just purely from an artistic point of view, every single page of that is glorious. So go on, you're doing very well so far. What's your final pick, seeing as you went for... And Michael chose another one, simply because he felt that that endless story was a bit short. Yes. So, how did you end up the, the episode, Michael? Right. Okay, go on, justify this one. Okay, next up is Batman and Robin issue one. Saying nothing. Which had a cover date of August 2009, had six covers. The first is Batman and Robin stood in front of the Batmobile against a yellow background by Quitler. The second by J.G. Jones shows Batman and Robin jumping over buildings. The rest are variations on the Quitler cover, pencil variant, a red background, a grey variant with a red Batman and Robin, and a white background variant. Batman Reborn Part 1, Domino Effect. Hazard by Quitler, colours by Alex Sinclair, letters by Patrick Brossio, edited by Janelle Siegel and Mike Mertz, and was written by some bloke. Yeah, I presume that's Brossio. Brossio. Okay. I could be wrong. I probably am. I'm assuming I'm wrong. Yeah, okay. The story starts with a getaway car driven by Mr. Toad, a Toadman thing. Who <laughs> was very funny, yeah. I have to say. Driving through an explosion into a tunnel with police cars and helicopters in pursuit. As the two goons in the back panic, the Batmobile flies through the tunnel and flies a missile at the car, sending it off course, and then grabs hold of the car roof. As the car attacks, the Batmobile flies over to the docks and drops the car in the sea. Mr. Toad gets out of the car and climbs up the ladder, holding a briefcase, only to be knocked out by the all-new Batman and Robin, Dick Grayson and Damian Wayne. As he's punched, he drops his briefcase and it opens, scattering dominoes everywhere. Confused about the dominoes, Batman takes Toad with him. Toad wakes up, but is unable to see anything because he's being blindfolded, and is told that he's being held 300 feet above Main Street. Toad refuses to tell Batman anything, and so he drops Toad onto the roof below and police surround him. <laughs> Which was very funny, because he was only about two foot yeah. above the roof. <laughs> As the Batmobile flies off, Toad warns Batman of Pig. Later, Dick and Alfred clear out the Batcave and Wayne Manor and drive off to Wayne Tower. Alfred prepares lunch and takes the elevator down to the Batcave, where Dick says that Dominoes are also known as Bones, but he probably already knew that. He also says that Toad isn't on any databases, but must be part of a circus. Dick and Damien get in the Batmobile and drive off. At the police department, Toad yells at the policeman whilst his car drives towards the department. The Batmobile flies through Gotham before hovering above the police at the department. As Commissioner Gordon lights the bat signal, Batman and Robin glide down to the roof. Outside, a man with his head on fire walks out to the car. 
we saw earlier and begs for help. When police rush to help him, he stands upright and attacks them. Elsewhere, one of Toad's goons packs up so that he and his dogs can get away. But as they go to the door, the other crook falls through with a group of masked people behind him. The crook wakes up tied to the table. Pig stands in front of him waiting for him to wake up so that he can transform him. He asks his assistants to bring the crook's new face in, a mask that looks exactly the same as the other masks, and places it on his face. He screams in pain for a short while, but then just lies there quietly as Pig grabs the power saw. After he's finished with the him, they'll both make his daughter perfect too. Pig will make everything perfect. Um, story first, because that's not what we're focusing on, but okay. of all the Grant Morrison things I've read and that you made me read, Oh, right, okay. uh, I've said before, I thoroughly enjoyed Kill Your Boyfriend, an animal man. But this was, I think, the most fun thing of his I've ever read. Oh, yeah. Damien Wayne's a tosser. Yes. So my opinion of Damien hasn't changed. And I especially dislike the bit in the middle where Damien says to Dick Grayson, if you can't handle the job, get out of the way. I could do it. What, pipsqueak? You're going to be Batman. What are you, eight? Well, he does become Batman. Yeah, when he's older, in an alternate reality, Batman 700 was that? Where we saw Damien became Batman? 700 and an upcoming issue of Batman Incorporated. Right. But other than that, this was actually the best thing of Morrison's. This is the best pure superhero thing of Morrison's I think I've read. Even All-Star Superman, which for the most part I enjoyed. I had a few problems with certain parts of it. But this was just really good Hmm. and really enjoyable and very, very fun. In terms of art... Uh, we first get the splash page on pages two and three with a flying Batmobile, which I quite liked. Yeah. I quite, it makes sense that he'd have some kind of Batmobile that can get through traffic. Yeah. You don't want Batman sat in a traffic snarl, do you? Which probably would happen. Which probably would happen, yeah. Uh, I love his depiction of Mr. Toad. Yeah. I like Mr. Toad. I love that he calls people Mingus. <laughs> I wonder how many people in America got what a Mingo was. I've no idea. Because that's, that's UK slang. It is, yeah. Isn't it? Uh, the first page alone is filled with really cool stuff. The yeah. explosion in the first panel forms with, two booms. Yeah, in the actual art. Uh, similar to what we said, Eisner and um, what Manipal's been doing with the Flash. Yeah. So the booms are actually the explosions, um, which is pretty damn cool. The following panels show the Batmobile getting closer and closer until the final panel, which shows the car in the shadow of it. Yeah, I do like Mr. Toad. Belts, gentlemen, please. Safety first. That's very Adam West. Yeah. Uh, Page two is the first proper look at the all-new Batmobile that can now fly. Mm -hmm. Similar to Batman of the Future. Yes. According to Grant Morrison's Batman run is canon. Uh, Everything's canon according to Grant Morrison, isn't it? Until the new 52 arrived. And even then it's all canon. And even then he's ignoring it, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Pages four and five has another really good use of onomatopoeia with the missiles forming a brooks. Yeah. Uh, I, I do have to confess I do like the body language on that page. As much as I don't like Damien Wayne, mm-hmm. his arrogant arms crossed, chin up, snarky. I told you it'd work. Body language is really well depicted by Quitley. Yeah. And again, on page seven where the car makes a splush when it falls into the water. I didn't get how he fired the missile in front of the car but it blew up behind it. Yeah, there is that. <laughs> I didn't understand that. Maybe the, it drove over it before it exploded? Possibly. I'll buy that. I did like that it clamped onto the car and then lifted it up. Didn't they do the same trick in Batman Captain America with the Batplane last week? Yeah. 
they did exactly the same trick though. But I have to say the artwork is very, very good though. Where they clamp onto Mr. Toad's car and lift it above the bus, thus avoiding it causing lots of innocent deaths, and then dropping him in the ocean, whereas Michael said the splash is again depicted as part of the art, which is pretty damn good. Page 12 is really good. Where the entire page is a splash page of Gotham, but with all of its focus on Wayne Tower. It splits at the bottom to show the underground and the Batcave. Um, on top of that is four panels, which show Alfred going from the penthouse to the Batcave, and every panel is connected to the tower to show whereabouts Alfred is. Yeah. Um, so has he, has he moved back into Wayne Tower like he did in the 70s? Yes. Right, OK. Um, going back a bit, the page where Batman and Robin punch out Mr. Toad, Robin's punch looks rather lacklustre and doesn't have any power behind it. Yeah. Do you not know think? But so does Batman's. Yeah, there's no power behind the punching. Whereas on a couple of the artists that we've covered, you felt the punches yeah. when they pumped some it. That, it just looks a bit lacklustre and a bit feeble. And I don't feel that they've really hit him. Um, I do like the idea of moving back into Wayne Tower. Because I could understand why Dick wouldn't want to live in Wayne Manor. Yeah. Because that's Bruce's place. Mm-hmm. And Wayne Tower was already there. Has he still got the tree in the middle of it? No, that's what Batwoman's living in at the moment. Right, okay. Moving off the art and onto the story for a bit, I think the relationship between Alfred, Dick and Damien is really well written. Uh, my favourite bit of conversation is, Alfred, these chicken and jalapeno sandwiches are ferocious. Mm. I can eat them by the ton. I will try to arrange a forklift for the next delivery, Master Richard. Yeah. Um, it's moments like these that gives this book a much lighter tone than most contemporary Batman books. Hmm. See, that's where I'm, I enjoyed this. Now, I'm not saying he's probably not going to get all wacky and crazy on me as we go along. It's not, really. Does it not? No. Oh, okay. The next page, Dick Grayson's neck's far too long. Oh, yeah. And he looks a lot like Jimmy Kerr. <laughs> yes, he does! He does look like Jimmy Kerr! <laughs> Very good. Very impressed. <laughs> now, page 18 is a great splash page of Batman and Robin gliding downwards from the Batmobile with the bat signal behind them. Yes, that is pretty good, that. Um, Batman's gliding, Robin's plummeting. Yeah. But at some point, I presume he's going to pull out of that and have a parachute or something. As we've mentioned before, bat signal cool. Yes. It, the bat signal is just cool. Mm-hmm. It just is. I will brook no argument. What I want to know is how they get back up to the Batmobile. Well, yeah, there is that. Maybe the Batmobile comes to them. Yeah. Page 21... Forget everything I said about this having a much lighter tone than other yeah. Batman books. Pig is really creepy. Um, he, he's, we'll find out later that he's working for Leviathan and teaches at the Leviathan school. He's also had minor cameos in previous issues such as 666. Although his best moment, I think, is in the next issue, of issue 3, where he kidnaps Damien and does that really weird dance. And then at the end of it all, Damien's just sat there going, you just redefined wrong yeah he puts the mask on the guy and burns it to his face which is a bit icky I got a very clockwork orange vibe off this guy hmm. did you that or was that just me it. have you ever seen a clockwork orange no. next time it's on ITV4 you should watch it okay. because it's an exceptionally good film but I did yeah I got a very clockwork orange vibe off this and all these henchmen henchwomen whatever the hell they are hmm. have all got those creepy doll face masks on which is yeah I don't yeah. like them it's like eyes wide shut Mm. And it's just, no, very icky. Page 22, the final three panels are teasers about the next issue. Mm. Batman and Robin fighting people, Robin being beaten up, and a blood-splattered domino, which is followed by um, teasers of upcoming story arcs. 
Robin thrown the R in his cape away in issues 1 to 3. Uh, Red Hood, a mysterious female partner in issues 4 to 6. Batman and Batwoman fighting as another Batman rises from the lava is issues 7 to 9. And Dr. Simon Hertz holding the keys to Wayne Manor is issues 10 to 16. How long did Quitley stay on this book? Just the first three issues. And then he never went back? He provided covers for the rest of the series. Right, see. Hmm. Okay. Um, I get what you're saying about it. Okay. I still think that based on what you've shown us, he is better on creator-owned and vertigo material than he is on straightforward superhero books. Even that one, which I did thoroughly enjoy, I have to say, I enjoyed that a lot more than I thought I'd, I would, given who the creative team was, yeah. and my reaction the last time you gave me a book by that creative team. Yeah. That being said, there's something about his Batman that's a bit off. I know it's Dick Grayson, not Bruce Wayne. But his chin is again very desperate down. Okay. And he doesn't look quite as doughy as his all star Superman work. Yeah. But it doesn't look like Batman. Okay. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, but I like it not looking like Batman because it's not. Because it's Dick Grayson. Yeah. Alright, fair enough. Oh, you have managed to refine my opinion on him as an artist. Okay. That still doesn't mean I like his superhero work. Yes. But certainly that first story you picked from DC Comics Present was excellent. Dark Horse. Yeah. That, that, yes, from Dark Horse Comics Presents, or whatever the hell it was called. Was yeah. it Dark Horse Presents? Yeah. Something like that, wasn't it? And again, being in black and white, I think, helped it no end. Because you can't hide anything when you're black and white. So well done on that, the choice. Because you have managed to change my opinion on an artist. I, I've, previously I would have said, he sucks! Yes. What's it like to suck so hard? Whereas you've managed to convince me that, no, he doesn't suck. He's just not suited to the material DC keeps giving him to draw. Yes. And that's not his fault. He's got to pay a paycheck. Mm-hmm. So he's not going to turn work down, presumably. But maybe he should stick with doing his own stuff. Because that looks really good. Yes. Is that your first choice over with? That's my first choice over with. Okay. Next week it's me again. I get to choose again. I've already got them here. Listen. Those are the three issues by the particular creator I have picked for next week's episode. I've done notes for one and a half of them. (laughs) So I've got one and a half left to do. So again, you can join the Facebook thing or email in and tell us who you think we're going to go for next. Mm -hmm. But other than that, that's it for this week. Michael's editing this one again. This is all his baby. Yep. So we'll see you next week with my choice and more emails if you email in. Because we only had four emails this week. Yeah. Okay, okay. See you next week. Bye-bye. Goodbye.
says that the devil will make work for idle hands to do production. And all opinions expressed in the show by Michael and Andrew are the opinions of Michael and Andrew and probably not to be taken too seriously. Old episodes of the show can now be found on the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network at www.twotruefreaks.libsen.com. That's T W O T R U E F R E A K S dot Libsen, L I B S Y N dot com. So if you're one of those people who wants to know where all our old shows are, that's where you'll find them. All music and sound clips used in the show are copyright the respective copyright holders, and no infringement is intended. Michael and Andrew make no money from this, much to their chagrin. New episodes drop every Thursday, currently at aplayland.podomatic.com, but you can also listen through our Facebook page, which you can friend us on by using Hey Kids as the first name and Comics as the surname. You can also listen on our website, where you can also view the covers of the comics that we've covered this week. That's www.heykidscomics.webspace.virginmedia.com. If you have an opinion or opinions, you can email us on heykidscomics at virginmedia.com. We also have a forum, www.forumforgeeks.com, where you can drop by and say hello if you're allergic to email. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Hey Kids Comics. Hey Kids Comics.